Today, our reading is from Luke 3, verse 21, until the end of chapter 4. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nathan, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Aresa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nati, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melalea, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, sorry about that, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Her Hezron, the son of Meres, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serag, the son of Haru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eba, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleh, I'm sorry my sight is not as good as it used to be, the son of Canaan, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, and the son of Adam who was the son of God. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, 
where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during these days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, as is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And thanks, uh, Kirst, for your prayer and Martin for reading. Uh, you, draw the <laughs> you drew the short straw, didn't you, today? My goodness. Um, one great thing about preaching is that it motivates me to clean my glasses. So I'm seeing out of these glasses better than I have for weeks. Uh, I might cancel my optometrist visit. There's a lot to, lot to go through, so, um, so let's get started. Uh, Jared, you okay? Thanks, mate. Jared's a genius with the slides. Well, I think genetics are fascinating. This inbuilt design that is passed on from generation to generation. I mean, it's often striking how similar parents and their kids look. Oh, I mentioned Lauren's and Lauren's, you know, it's like no similarity there. I mean, who has not looked at a child and seen how similar they are to their parents, their siblings, or their extended families? Uh, by the way, there, there's no prizes for picking who's got the different genetic footprint in that photo. Yeah. Well, in, in 1990, an international collaboration of scientists uh, formed the Human Genome Project to try and map all the genes in humans. The director for most of this project was a Christian, Francis Collins. His conversion began when he was a medical student uh, and a, a terminally ill woman asked him, hey, what do you believe in? That simple question stumped him, and he felt an urgent need to answer it. So, he, so God used C.S. Lewis and uh, a local pastor to lead him to Christ. And he's convinced, remains convinced, that faith, more than science, can illuminate morality and existence. 
Well, by 2003, the, the project had successfully mapped the sequence of the human genome. And Collins said, it is both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. And the positive impact that this has had on health, criminology, sociology, um, uh, philosophy is just nothing short of amazing. Yet for all the insights it's given us, it's not solved human, humanity's biggest gene problem, which is sin. Humans, from the very beginning, have failed to solve the problem of sin. We have tried. Forms of government, laws and punishment, psychology, religions, all sorts of different ways to create utopia, yet sin continues to wreak havoc. I mean, really, who or what on earth can solve this, this problem of sin? And last week, Liam showed us that John the Baptist knew the answer to that as he pointed to Jesus. So I guess, well, you know, was Jesus's genome sequence uh, missing a sin gene? <laughs> was he, uh, I can't test that, we can't test that. But I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was exactly like ours. I, it was not some miracle of, of, um, of genetics that, could, that, that enabled Jesus to live a sinless life. Rather, it was his deep and reliant relationship with, his, with, his, with the Holy Spirit and God the Father. And today we're going to look at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and get an insight into how he'll go about solving this life and death problem of sin. And a, a bit of a heads up on our, uh, on, on our outline for today. So we're going to begin with the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. And then we'll look at the three temptations that the devil threw at him. Hunger. You deserve it. Kingdoms, the easy way. Testing the Lord. Is God really with you or us? And then we'll go to applications. What do I think I deserve? What are my kingdoms? And is God really with me? And we'll end with the last word. Before we start, let's pray. Our gracious God, as we open your word, may your spirit work in me to speak your truth and inside us to invoke awe and gratitude at your divine and glorious goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So jumping straight into our first point, one, the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. Uh, just a sigh of relief, I'm not going to read that whole gene genealogy again. Um, Luke 3, 21 to 23. When all the people were baptised, Jesus was baptised too. As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry 
he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Well, I wonder if genealogies are your favourite things to read. You know, Sharice, we're going on a holiday. I wonder if I can find a great genealogy to take with me. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, right? But biblical genealogies are really important. They're like a historical form of a train map. You know the ones where the major stations are written in large letters? Without the genealogy, Jesus just, it really, he doesn't make sense. And you can see in this slide that there are names that are highlighted as being significant. Jesus, David, Abraham, Noah and Adam. And these names remind us of the story of the Old Testament. They create a historical map of how humans have failed to obey God and the great promises or covenants that God has made. Look, if you want to get a really good oversight of the whole Bible story, I recommend God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. It's, it's brilliantly simple and just a great overview of biblical theology. But back to our genealogy. And we'll start with the father of sin, Adam. Remember God placed him in paradise with Eve, but when the devil questions God's goodness, they disobey God. The consequences are terrible. The entire human race and all creation uh, falls under the curse of sin. But there's a glimmer of hope, right? God promises that an offspring of Adam and Eve will crush Satan's head. Well, Jesus, as our genealogy says, is an offspring of Adam and Eve, and he has come to crush the devil's head to reverse the curse of sin, to redeem all humanity and creation. Well, Abraham, the great Jewish patriarch, God promised him a son to make him into a great nation, to make his name great, to bless all peoples on earth. Abraham thinks to himself, my wife Sarah, she's 90 years old. That can't happen. So he sleeps with one of his servants, Hagar, and bears a son. But eventually Sarah does fall pregnant and they give birth to Isaac. Yeah. In the face of temptation, Abraham failed. But Jesus, an offspring of Abraham, has come to be a blessing to all people on earth. And David, of course, the greatest king, the greatest of Israel's kings, when faced with temptation, fell into adultery and murder. Yet God promised David that through his offspring he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And Jesus, an offspring of David, has come to establish his eternal kingdom. Adam failed, Abraham failed, David failed, Israel failed, humanity failed. But Jesus won't. The genealogy grounds Jesus in history as a real person with real ancestors and points to him being the promised Messiah, the fulfilment of all the Old Testament promises. And with that as the foundation, Luke begins the account of how Jesus' ministry began, which takes us to our second point, the three temptations of Jesus.
So Luke 4, 1 to 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we get an insight into what it looks like. Look again at verse 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. One of the fundamental characteristics of Jesus' ministry is that in his human form, Jesus will be full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. And the first place he's led is into the wilderness, where for 40 days he eats nothing and he's tempted by the devil. I mean, that's some way to kick off a ministry. The Judean wilderness is a hostile place, sweltering hot at day, parched, at, parched and arid, freezing at night. And if that's not hard enough, he eats nothing. And for the entire 40 days, the devil tempts him. Can you imagine? <laughs> like you're tired, you're hungry, you're weak, you're alone. And for 40 days, the devil's voice is constantly nagging at him. Oh, man, it's Liam and Rob, are they in here? Is that how Fiek recommends you start your ministry? I hope not. And at the end of the 40 days, Jesus is hungry. Hungry? Surely that's one of the great understatements. He must have been starving. Like I go for 24 hours without food and our two pet birds are in serious danger of being devoured. <laughs> 40 days. And it's then with Jesus at his weakness that the devil, devil magnifies his efforts, which leads us to the first temptation. Hunger, or you deserve it. So Luke 4, 3 to 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Well, hunger impacts on us emotionally, mentally and spiritually. We've all experienced or seen what hangry is, right? It's an example of how hunger makes us more vulnerable to temptation. Even seeing hunger can cause people to say there is no God. And Jesus is starving, right? And the devil says, look, look if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And the devil knows that Jesus is the son of God. He's basically saying to Jesus, you're the son of God, just satisfy yourself, you deserve it. But Jesus answers from Deuteronomy, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. I'm hoping that the number 40 in wilderness is ringing bells. Remember how after the Israelites were miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. It's all documented in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Well, early in those 40 years, they find themselves with no food. 
And after all the miracles God had shown them, they quickly lost their faith in God. They actually accused God of bringing them into the desert in order to starve them all to death. In the face of, of, of hunger, they just crumbled and sinned. But God heard their grumbling and graciously, graciously provided them with manna uh, every day. And when we read Deuteronomy 8.3, which is where uh, Jesus quoted from in context, it says that God caused them to be hungry in order to humble them and teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord or from the mouth of the Lord. Can you see the contrast? Israel, Jesus. Israelites were humbled by God to show them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus humbles himself and lives by God's spoken word. And this will be the second characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Are filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, he will humble himself and live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the Father. I mean, you might have noticed I kind of skipped over the baptism, partly because um, Rob did a great job of speaking about uh, God's or Jesus' divinity a couple of weeks ago. And two, it's just so much to cover. But that, but that humbling of himself and living by every word that comes from the mouth of uh, the mouth of God the Father, we, we see that in the baptism. Jesus, in Matthew three fifteen, Jesus to fulfil all righteousness humbly allowed John to baptise him as a sign that he was handing his will and life over to the Father. And when he comes out of the water. The crowd sees the Holy Spirit descend onto him and hears God's voice saying, You are my son, whom I love, I am well pleased. You see, the son, the father, the Holy Spirit, together, united, Jesus, fully God, fully human. Since creation, no one, no one has lived perfectly by the word of God except Jesus. And it, was, it wasn't some genetic miracle. It was because he was fully God and fully human in absolute fellowship with the Holy Spirit and God the Father. So having failed to tempt him in his hunger, the devil tried another angle, which leads us to the second temptation. All the kingdoms of earth, or an easier way. Luke 4, 5 to 8. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil shows, shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, it's all yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. That's quite an offer, right? 
I mean, really, if you fuck off and me a penthouse on Sydney Harbour, I might, I might think about it, yeah, but all the kingdoms of the world. Since Adam, the devil has ruled the world, but he knows that Jesus has come to establish his kingship over all creation. And when that happens, the devil is doomed. Uh, he has no place in Jesus' kingdom. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry in John, uh, he promises that the prince of this world will be driven out. And then in Revelation, he's thrown into a lake of burning sulfur. But for that to happen, Jesus will have to endure great humiliation and suffering to the point of death on a cross. And the devil offers him an easier way than the cross. Just worship me. Bow down before me and this will all be yours. And Jesus replies with another quote from Deuteronomy. It is written, fear the Lord, uh, this is a Deuteronomy passage, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus' mission is so much more than lordship over the kingdoms of the world. Can you remember um, Jesus was born? And uh, the shepherds were out in the field and there was a whole host of angels appeared and they said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. I'm sure Jesus is, is, has come to free sinners and creation from the curse of sin and establish his eternal kingdom. But that is ultimately done to glorify God the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest and crucifixion, he was so distraught that he, Jesus sweated blood and prayed three times that the Father take his pending suffering away. But each time he finishes the prayer with, but your, your will be done, not mine. And just before his arrest, in John we read that Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. There was no easy way for Jesus to do what he had to do. If Jesus had have worshipped the devil, all would have been lost. As tempting as it was to take the easy way, Jesus says, no, I'll worship the Father, I'll worship God only. So the devil, 40 days, nagging Jesus, two temptations, thinks he's going to have one last shot at Jesus, which leads us to the third temptation, uh, testing God or is God really with us? So Luke 4, 9 to 12. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike, strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil changes tactics. <laughs> He's a... Uh, Twice Jesus has answered his temptations by quoting God's word uh, from the Old Testament. So the devil himself 
tries a passage from the Old Testament and quotes Psalm 91. The devil, of course, is twisting God's word. I encourage you to read Psalm, 20, Psalm 91. It's a great psalm. And if you do, you'll see that God is not offering a safety net um, to rescue everyone from reckless behaviour. It actually says, if you say the Lord is your refuge and make him your dwelling place, call on him and hold fast to him in love, you'll find safety. The whole psalm is about trusting God, not testing him. And Jesus answers again from, yep, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.16, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Well, this refers, again, directly back to another part of Israel's history in the wilderness. This time, with their bellies full, they end up in a camp with no water. Guess what they do? Thank you, yeah. Yep, they begin to grumble and complain again. And they quarrel with Moses and demand he give them water. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And, of course, God miraculously provides water, after which Moses names the place Massah and Meherbah because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord amongst us? You see, the devil is really asking Jesus, Is God the Father really with you? Is he really a good God? Why don't you just test it? In their struggles, the Israelites question if God was amongst them. In fact, all humanity I have, I don't know about you, has at some stage questioned God's presence. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he fully trusts that God the Father is with him. And Jesus, in this, in, in this state of extreme weakness, succeeds resisting the three powerful temptations. Where all humanity has failed, Jesus succeeds. Here, at the very beginning of his ministry, he begins to show that he alone can deal with sin. And then we have our final uh, verse from today, Luke 4.13. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The devil kind of reminds me as a kid when I was nagging mum for stuff. <laughs> so in an, it's an ominous ending yeah, and shows us that the devil is persistent and patient. And all through Luke, we'll continue to see him working, is constantly at work around Jesus. And, of course, he's still active. So I want to go on to some applications to see how Satan, the devil, may be tempting us to, in, uh, in our lives. So application, the first one, bread, you deserve it. So the devil tempted Jesus with the message, satisfy yourself, you deserve it. Look, we live in a world that is constantly telling us that we deserve more and more, a promotion, better pay, 
better phones, better cars, better service. It really is endless. So in applying this to myself, my first question is, well, what are the things in, I, in my life that I feel like I deserve? And there's times I hear that persistent voice saying, I deserve more. I mean, it's a really basic example. The NIS has been amazing for Sharice and I. I'm allocated these funds to cover my support needs. And to date, the funds have been more than I require, so I end up with unused funds. My needs are met. But guess what this little voice kind of consistently pops up with? Mal, that money's yours. Why don't you use it how you want? It's not really fraud. It's your money. They gave it to you. Yeah? It's like I deserve it. At other times, I, th I find myself thinking I deserve all the good things I have because I earned them. If others just would, I did what I did, they'd have it too. Yeah. And can you see the sinful pride and, and lack of gratitude in that? So this week, I invite us all to look at the sinful ways this works in our lives. And then find, mem find and memorise verses that remind us that all we have is from God to be used as God wishes because we do not live on bread alone but on every word from God. I was really encouraged this week as uh, one of our um, growth group um, members uh, after the, this week's study um, sent a message to our group chat with with a particular uh, sin that they struggle with and a few, a few memory verses that, that they use um, when they feel that. So the next application, kingdoms or the easy way. Well, the devil offered Jesus an easy way to be Lord of all the, all the world's kingdoms. So my second application is, uh, what are my personal kingdoms? So many things. <laughs> you know, as, again, as an example, I can see retirement can be my kingdom. Like how will I spend my time and the financial security God has given me? I mean, the easy way would be to just put my feet up, head off on holidays, you know, use the blessings God has given me to satisfy or to indulge myself. I mean, serving, self-sacrifice, generosity, loving others, that stuff is tough, right? But will the easy way please God? I don't know, but, you know, maybe it's work and career or school, TAFE, university or an investment portfolio or the family or even the church itself. What would we be willing to compromise to get a job? maintain a job, to climb the corporate ladder or to get those great results or, or to be popular at our university TAFE or school? And, and how interested are we in the ethics of institutions we invest in? What lengths would we go to to get what we want in our families? What would we be willing to compromise to have some church growth? So this week, I invite us all to have a look at our personal kingdoms, then find and memorise verses that remind us 
through Jesus, we have been brought in into an eternal kingdom that is so much better than any earthly kingdom can offer. And that is why God alone is worthy of, worthy of worship. Which brings us to our third and final application, testing God or is God really with us? Or maybe this happens in hard times when we experience or see things like death or sickness, financial problems, relationship breakups, drought, floods, earthquakes, famine, injustice. Like life can really feel overwhelming and just harsh. God, are you really amongst us? Is all this really a part of your plan to redeem us and all creation? But there's, there's also mornings where I just wake up with an empty feeling that life is just a drag, a groundhog day for no obvious reason. It feels like I've woken up in the wilderness and I have no sense of God being present. Well, what about you? What causes you to doubt that God is really amongst us? So again, another invite. Let's all look at when we question whether God is with us and then find and memorise verses that remind us that the one we call Emmanuel, God with us, is always present. Which kind of brings us to the last word. And no, superior, no surprises, Jesus is our landing point. In today's passage, Jesus does what no other human can, resisting every temptation that the devil threw at him and perfectly obeying God the Father. Again, not because he had some super genetic sequence, but because Jesus is fully human and fully God in perfect unity with the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Now, it's really good that we do some hard work and look at how we are being tempted and how we can use God's word to resist it. But if we think we can do this perfectly, then we're back to salvation by works. We cannot live perfect lives, but we have a perfect high priest who is with us and for us. Jesus has done what we cannot do. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's only in him that we find our salvation. I'm just going to close on, uh, on I think, this wonderful passage from Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, our gracious God, we, we, we thank you for Jesus. May we continue to have our eyes and our hearts open to your love and grace that will increasingly put our hope in you and the saving power of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I get to stay here for questions. Oh, I was packing up real quick. Mm. I hope you got some good questions this week for Mal. I think there's a few questions in that thing. If you got my phone there, tell me if I get texted in. I've got questions about that passage. So. <laughs>
mind to you, Mel. I don't. Yeah. Oh, good on you, Rob. Oh. Some meaning. Um, just picking up on the last passage there, um, and then the, the temptation in particular of Jesus. So Jesus was tempted in every way so that, you know, he understands what we go through. Was there, and maybe this is an impossible question to answer. Was there any potential that Jesus could have ever succumbed to that temptation? Or at the end of the day, mm. Jesus is God, so he would have never mm. succumbed to that temptation anyway. Well, I think that's, God, that's Jesus being fully God and fully human. So he feels the power of the temptation, but being fully God, he just, it's, it's really, he just can't sin, right? He, he submits. Um, so the answer is yes and no, <laughs> I think, you know. He could have, but he doesn't, which shows us even further proof that he's God, the Son. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really good question. I don't know if Liam's got anything else to add to that, but it's a really good question, um, yeah. But he didn't because he's a fulfilment of all those promises. He's undoing sin. He's doing what Adam couldn't do. He's like the Romans, Paul calls him uh, the second Adam. Through, uh, through the first one comes sin and death. Uh, through the second Adam comes life for all people, yeah? One of one of earth, one of uh, one of the spirit. I think Sue. Oh, sorry, yeah, Laura. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much. Um, I just had a question because I remember before I became a Christian, mm. um, someone, um, a Christian friend of mine, said to me that um, to doubt or to question God is actually a really healthy thing. Mm. Um, and this obviously was before I was a Christian. Mm. What would you sort of say to that? Look, I, I think anyone who doesn't wrestle with, the, with God's real reality and God's presence and God's grace and God's goodness, uh, I don't think is <laughs> I don't I, I think it's impossible for us not to do that. Um, I think it is a good thing that we wrestle with that. Um, that's a refining thing. That's something that that hopefully God uses to bring us closer. Uh, I think the sin of God, of sin that Jesus is talking about there, is actually sinning and grumbling and just accusing God of things that God is not guilty of. Yeah. So I think we're human. I wrestle with it. I know. I question God's goodness from time to time. Um, so I think that at a fundamental level, I'd love not to have that sinfulness, but it's a part of my human reality. Yeah, that's where it's helpful to have uh, books like Job and the, mm. the Psalms where individuals in a godly way actually do question God, but they don't mm. settle in a heart, as Mal was saying, of mm. grumbling and accusing God. They're more saying, oh, how, what's going on? So that's, mm. yeah, it's a, it's a different heart attitude. Mm. I think Sue had her hand Did up. Do you before. have one, Sue? Sue's always no. no. Oh, there you go. I think we. I think we might be off. Thank you, Doki. Radio Musos, come on up, and we'll respond. Thanks for that, Mal. Thank you. Um,